Welcome to Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast. The podcast that's more 90s and seeing the launch of a brand new terrestrial TV channel. 20 years ago, Channel 5. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Bloody love the Spice Girls. My name is Ash Rose, your host and guide on this, the original 90s football podcast. Thank you very much for downloading if this is your first time or if you've been with us from the start on this nostalgia trip. Thank you very much. Your support is always appreciated. If this is your first time, then more than ever, you do need to go back and have a listen at the last couple of episodes because we're in the midst of doing a season by season look back at the 1990s, like a mini series within our series here on Alive and Kicking. So we started a couple of episodes back with the first season of the decade, 1990-91. Uh, we had Greg Lansdowne on the show, a Arsenal fan, and we talked about their title reign. And he's also a author of a fantastic book. If you are a fan of Panini stickers and collectibles throughout the decades, not just the 90s, but for the history of the sticker collections and all that through the 90s, the pro set, the pro match, Panini, Merlin, all included in that book, go and get it because it's a fantastic book. Good plug there for Greg. And then last time out, we had John Isherwood and Matthew Christ talking to us about 91, 92. And good show, really enjoyed it with the guys. Looking back, especially at the title run between Leeds and Manchester United and Liverpool's Cup win. We touched on Euro 92 and a few other bits and bobs. But I think the biggest thing that that I took home from that episode uh, was that the fact that between 91 and 92 and 92, 93, which we'll talk about today, even though it was just uh, the following season, it was only a few months apart, the difference between the two seasons is so vast Obviously, we know why, because of the Premier League and everything changed, and we'll talk about that in great detail today. But it didn't really... Well, it did occur to me, but not so much until John, I think, you said it, and then we discussed it as a group on the show, that it, it really is. It was the old meets new for 92-93, and you look back at 91-92 now, and it does seem brilliantly dated, because I love football from that from that era, as was why I'm doing the podcast, and written the book, available at all good bookstores. But yeah, I really took that home. But yeah, it was a good show to, with the guys as well. We have Matthew back on today's show, actually. He will be joining us again to talk Man United. He's becoming our little Man United resident in this sort of look back season by season. Uh, we also have Paul Parker on the phone. I thought it was a great guest, actually. It was his birthday last week as well, so happy birthday to Paul. Um, he did talk... A little more QPR than I thought he would do because we had him on the show, obviously, to talk about Manchester United and their Rumbelow's Cup win and that brilliant kit they were wearing during it. So, but no, he didn't want to talk QPR more, which as a fan, obviously, I love hearing about it. The club is clearly close to Paul's heart still. I know he was inducted into the Forever Hours Hall of Fame that they're doing at Loftus Road at the moment a few weeks ago. So he did love the club, spoke a lot about Alan McDonald. I had to throw Roy Wegley in there as well, didn't I? Just because he's my uh, QPR hero, 90s hero. So it was good to hear memories of him. Uh, the interview today is a little bit different. It's not a footballer from the past, but somebody who was involved at Sky at the time. So we'll talk to him in a bit, as well as the guys about 92, 93. Before I wanted to talk about that, though, I want to talk about kits. Yes, you won't be surprised. I'm talking football kits again. For anyone who listens to this regularly knows I bloody love a football kit, especially in the 90s. I am hashtag a kit geek. Uh, I, I bring it up because between the last podcast and this one, England played a few weeks ago um, in their brand new away kit, which I like. Very nice blue. I'm always preference to a blue away kit than a red one, despite the 66 stuff and everything else. But it's yes, it's that template again that, that Nike have rolled out since the last summer and Euro, through Euro 2016. And you see in the Man City kit and a few other kits that Nike have got templates, eh? Why? It just really annoys me. I mean, 
I would think, as a kit designer, surely the pinnacle of your business or your career or the way you do things is to do a bespoke kit for every team under your umbrella. Why roll out the same template? It's like day one, template, and then day two, done, change the colours. It's just, you know, USA have got the same kit, Portugal, France, we saw it at Euro 2016 as well. It's just, I don't understand it. I mean, for me... I love football kits, and if I hadn't been doing what I do now with Kick Magazine and with you guys on here and everything else I do with Gorilla Position and things like that, I think kick design is something I'd really like to have gone into. In fact, I remember spending a lot of my art class when I should have been doing whatever was being drawn on the board, uh, uh, yeah, blackboard, not whiteboard, by Mr. Gillum at Woolwich Polytechnic. I was meant to be doing that, but I was in the corner designing kits. Uh, That's all I wanted to do in art class. It was so much fun. And and not just QPR kits, because they're quite hard to do as well, because the hoops make it quite restricting. But any team, I just loved it. In fact, there was one I remember quite vividly, and always remember this. I don't know why it sticks out. Maybe because it's Man United. But I used to only design a kit if I can envisage envisage a player wearing it. And I had Ryan Giggs in my mind with this kit. Don't know why. It just kind of happened, celebrating a goal at the time of his curly locks. And the kit I designed was gold which is quite, you know, even different for the 90s. And it had kind of black flecks on it. Not quite as flecky as the, the Norwich classic bird poo kit, but a, a little bit toned down by that. But still quite, you know, noticeable flecks on it. And then black shorts with gold trimming and probably gold socks, if I remember rightly. That was my Man United kit that I designed. And uh, for me, I just think it's a you know, every team should have their own different kit. I know even in the 90s there were templates. It's not a new thing, but I think it's gone even more to the extreme um, in this modern era and I, and I hate it but going back to the England kit it having that come out brings up these polls and these lists and stuff where different outlets do their top 10 worst and best England kits throughout history and I'm going to name and shame one of them now and that is I think it was the mirror online yeah it was the mirror online can't remember the writer but they did their top 45 or top... Well, I think they covered pretty much every England kit that's ever been. Certainly since kit design's been a thing in, from the 70s onwards. Um, and in last place, they chose what is easily, for me personally, the best England kit of all time. In last place, they chose the Free Lions kit from 91-92, the third kit, the beautiful... I think it's... Well, I call it Sky Blue, but... I think there's probably a better name for it somewhere. Those colour pe- color people in the industry would know better. But yes, yeah, sky blue kit with those three massive lions across the chest. Uh, not cowardly, like John Devlin, the great kit expert, calls them. But that kit, it was so different. I love it. It's a kit that I wore actually round Bournemouth on my stag do a few years ago, which people you know, gave me second looks about. Because it's a kit you don't see it very often. I think we only wore it once or twice. I know for definite in a couple of friendlies and a game against Czech Republic sticks out and a friendly against Spain where David White made his debut. I put a tweet up at the time when I was talking about it of Mark Haightley in the kit and it got good some traction online. So thank you to everyone who tweeted or retweeted and replied to that. But people genuinely wanted to talk about it and couldn't believe, like me, that it was in last place. Ridiculous. Absolutely amazing kit. Um, it was in my top five kits of the decade, in fact. So if you go back and listen to that pod, uh, that was Christmas time. Me and the great John Devlin spoke about our top five kits of the 90s. And that was in mine. And I just can't believe that it was in last place on, on that poll. So shame on you, Mirror Online. Um, but And also, I even saw it on a brand new uh, Twitter feed that has come about the last few weeks or something. It's called 90s Mags. Uh, follow it there. It's 
basically snippets and clippings from 90s magazines so like 90 minutes and shoot and match and, and everything the glory days of football magazines well not that they're not now kick magazine all the way but all good stores but they did a tweet of uh, one of those kit catalogs that we had back in the 90s because we didn't have the internet or twitter or facebook to see when new kits come out we had to buy shoot or match flick through and find those kit catalogs and see those horribly 90s models standing there in whatever kit there's going to be for next season and they tweeted out in fact a picture of that brilliant england third kit uh with a model with his pure ian walker curtained haircut and yeah, it's just, I love it. I'm looking at it now. I just love that kit. I'm glad I've still got one that I wear. And whenever there's, I'm not one that really buys into the, all the England euphoria anymore. I think I'm going to get a bit long in the teeth for that. But if I'm going to wear an England shirt on a day when England are playing, especially in a tournament, that's the shirt I wear. It's the best England kit of all time. So shame on you, Mira. Um, the new one, I don't mind. It's just uh, the template thing. So yeah, I'm all for the blue kits, as you well know, here on Alive and Kicking. But turning to today, that's talk about today's show. And as I said, we've got Matthew Christ back with us as well as Matthew Davis as well a debut for us here on Life and Kicking but for anyone who listens to Gorilla Position which is a wrestling podcast which I'm part of and on TalkSport 2 Wednesday nights at 11pm he's part of that so our voices are very familiar together we'll be talking 92-93 and and just indulge me for a second because I don't go into it in great detail on the show about 92-93 because it was a massive season for my own team uh, Queen's Park Rangers we were the top London club that year a great team wearing a great kit first of all the the strangely lighter hooped shirt with classic fm under jerry francis and that team was a, a, just a great team i mean it had les ferdinand at the spearhead obviously he was the star player he scored all the goals he was in the, amongst the top scorers and he was third just behind teddy sheringham and ian wright and um, that we had on the wings andy sinton andy impey got the great ray wilkins in midfield pulling the strings alongside ian holloway and then the great the defence, I mean, I think it's such an underrated defence. Guys like David Bardsley, who did get a couple of England caps under Graham Taylor. Clive Wilson, who never got one, robbed of an England call-up because he was an absolutely fantastically consistent left-back. Great penalty taker as well. McDonald and Maddox in the middle. Goalkeeper, you know, sort of rotated between Jan Stasko and Tony Roberts. But it was such a great team and great collective and really, really the best season Certainly, of my, you know, I've had some great times in the modern era of coming up from the Championship into the Premier League. But as a Premier League team, I mean, to think about it now, Queen's Park Rangers finished above Arsenal, above Chelsea, above Tottenham, even West Ham. We were top London club in 92-93. I even had the flag in my old room back at home in Plumstead on the wall for a long time. It was just to keep our flag that said London's top club, 92-93. So massive, massive season for QPR. Um, we did try and get Rufus Brevet on the phone. Didn't quite manage to arrange time, timings for it. So we'll save that for another day when we can talk about that season. But I don't go into it as much on the podcast because basically we run out of time. There's so much to get through in 1992-93. What with the, the organisation of the Premier League, May United's title winning uh, campaign first of all for 26 years we talked Nottingham Forest and Brian Clough's last season then there's the Champions League uh, this is so much to talk about in 1993 Norwich Blackburn everything else the cut run our Steve Morrow falling off Tony Adams shoulders loads and loads to talk about on there um, I know there's a few things on Twitter as well that people got in touch when I put that remember the goals 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 video I don't know if you saw the tweet that I put on there all those end of season goals videos and race for the championship I bloody love those I put a picture of that uh, saying if your memories in 92-93 and a few people got back to us uh, Nick Godwin in sport who's a great uh, reporter for the BBC he said newly promoted Ipswich beating leaders Manchester United Champions Leeds Moneybags Blackburn and Norwich to end their title dreams great day so that's his memories of 1993 Chucky Egg 10 
again. So the return of match of the day, of course, yes, it was 1993 saw match of the day return to the airways for the first time um, since, uh, the, well, for a good while because ITV had the highlights package and the live football from most of the 1990s and the late 80s. So your match of the day started again, 1993, now staple hold of Saturday nights, of course, but it was off our screens in the early 90s as it was again later in the uh, early 2000s as well when ITV picked up again. But no, match of the day, obviously back with Gary Lineker, Des Lyon and all that lot in 92-93. And Mr. Anthony Carter said Villa beating Liverpool twice and Atkinson's magical goal against Wimbledon. We do talk about Dalian Atkinson in the show as well. A great Dalian Atkinson that sadly passed away a few weeks ago. So let's get to that. Before I do, let me just give you the housework. You can follow us at AK90s on Twitter and on Facebook. Um, we don't do Facebook a lot, um, mainly because Twitter, I find, is a better tool for activity. But our likes are pretty dreadful on Facebook. So if you are on Facebook, which I imagine most people are these days, could you give us a like? It'd be great. It'd be muchly appreciated. As I always say, it really does help us build the brand here on Alive and Kicking, especially when we've got increased competition as well. Uh, as well as that as well, if you do love the show, please, please, please give us a rating and a review on iTunes because it really, really does help us. I want to keep this show going. We've still got lots to do here, lots to do on this, just on this mini-series. We've still got quite a few episodes to go. Um, we've got some lots, lots of stuff in the pipeline. I keep mentioning the Class 92 show we're going to do. We will do that at some point. I want to do Italian football. I'm hoping to talk to, to uh, James Richardson, get him on the show. So that would be fantastic. Um, some playoff themes as well. There's a lot more. And, and tell us if there's anything we haven't covered throughout the 40-odd episodes we've done so far. We'd love to, to know what themes you'd like us to talk about. So yeah, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. That would be much appreciated. And of course, you can go download all the other previous episodes on iTunes or on SoundCloud or whatever podcast platform you choose to listen to. So there's me. There's my little plugs for everything else we'll get on now with the show we've kind of switched up again this week the interview is going to come first where we're speaking to somebody he was around sky because we talk obviously a lot about sky in the opening of this show because they were so prominent in the premier league and everything that happened at the start of 92 93 how they a whole new ball game of course is how they coined it that was the catchphrase of that great alive and kicking advert of course the advert i wanted to mention that in the intro we do go and talk about it on the show but the advert alive and kicking is obviously where the name of this podcast is spun from and the book as well that i wrote before the podcast is called alive and kicking that's available on amazon and all good bookstores and just go back and watch the advert we talk about it in detail on the show it still gives me little tingles and nostalgia every time i watch it it's so cheesy now but at the time i was so excited about it and all these, new, you know, the players working out in the gym, Paul Stewart thinking these new kids on the block coming through White Hart Lane, all those cameras and stuff. It is absolutely a, it's set in stone in its time and I love it. Please go and watch it. I know the guys at Football Pink tweeted the advert as well. They're doing a 90s episode, uh, a 90s, sorry, so they issue in a couple of weeks, which we'll talk about because we've got the guys from that coming on the show. So you go back and look at the advert um, once you listen to the show. But as I was saying, our guest today is Matthew Lorenzo, a very much well-known voice from that time went on to ITV as well did their Champions League coverage so lots to talk about with Matthew so it's three mats just realised that on the show Matthew Lorenzo is our guest Matthew Christ and Matthew Davis so it's the three mats yeah so great good job they weren't all at the same time that got confusing hey anyway, let's listen to the three mats and me speak 1992-93 I'm Ash Rose this is Alive and Kicking please enjoy Joining us now on the line uh, for our live and kicking is TV presenter from the 90s and onwards, Mr. Matt Lorenzo. Thank you for joining us, Matt. Glad you said onwards as well. It's not like we're stuck in the 90s and never <laughs> well, heard of again, although it's close <laughs> to it. This podcast genuinely is, though, and people might say I am. But in the, in the beginning of the 90s and in the late 80s, you were at Sky. So 
for the formation of the Premier League. What do you remember about those days and, and this deal coming together? Uh, well, I remember um, at Sky was the first uh, uh, sports presenter they had up back mm. on Sky News when it started in 1989. No one really knew if, if it was going to work. Most people thought it wasn't, but it was a job and they were uh, desperate to get people, which is how I slid in. Um, so it was a good fun on, on three years on, on Sky News. And then the Premier League arrived in 92 and it arrived at just the right time because I think Sky was hemorrhaging money at that point. Starting Sky had been a huge gamble for Mr. Murdoch and uh, he took another gamble to save the company effectively by weighing in deep with the Premier League. And it's a gamble, as uh, everyone knows, that paid off hugely. So, um, yeah, those first three years were tough, but um, it got a lot easier for Sky in 92, which is around the time I left to go to ITV. So that was a stroke of brilliance on my part. You say that. We'll talk about that in a second. But, for, I mean, for Sky itself, you say it was a massive gamble that paid off. I mean, what do you remember about the sort of whispers of it happening and, and what were your thoughts at the time about the deal and the possible the Premier League being on Sky? Well, there weren't many whispers at my level um, because mine was fairly lowly. But you would have thought as a journalist I might have got wind of it. I didn't. Uh, so much of my information has come since then, uh, investigating, reading stories about how it actually happened. So we didn't know, and it, it took uh, everybody by storm, not just Sky, but the football world in general. And again, most people uh, were cynical about the chances of success. How could anything survive if it wasn't on terrestrial television? Mm. How could a, a little, even though very few people had Sky, um, they would still put all this money up and they were wondering what, how it could work. Um, so, yeah, you have to put your ba- yourself back in the time and realise there was a lot of cynicism and doubt. Uh, but, of course, on reflection, it seemed an obvious move and they got it cheap, despite the, the thousands they spent. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you, as you said, you weren't there, but do you remember the, the ad campaigns and things like that? What were your thoughts at the time? Because the Live and Kicking music, we remember fondly, obviously, it's why the podcast is called Alive and Kicking and the advert of all the players. Uh, what are your memories of, of, of that campaign? Well, uh, Rupert's always very keen on promotion and what they call trails. Every commercial break to this day on Sky starts and ends mm, with a trail does. for another service or another program. Uh, and in fact, the trail department was the biggest department at Sky at the time. Now it's human resources, I think. Um, so, yeah, he was big on promotion uh, and it worked quite well. Uh, I forget what the, the dancing girls were called, the soccerettes or whatever. Um, they were quickly forgotten. Uh, and I remember the jackets that uh, Keys and Gray used to wear. Oh, God, they were glorious. Again, that's that's time taking stock. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, they do that promotion. They still do it very well. They do indeed. You said you moved on to ITV. I mean, what sparked that move for you personally? It was just a great offer. Uh, you know, effectively, I'd only been doing presenting for about three years. And I got the chance to move to... Uh, local TV, London TV, a show called London Tonight, which was hailed as the next best thing because they were putting national funding into a a local program. Um, So it was a a great opportunity. And you have to remember at the time, very few few people were watching Sky. So for a presenter, uh, the exposure was that much better. And, And it was great for a couple of years. You were part of the team that the ITV had the Champions League coverage and the Champions League was very different to the, the beast we know it now. What are your early memories of the Champions League? I remember the first season, the Battle of Britain as well. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> it was good fun. I mean, I was still in shock, really. So I'd gone from Sky to ITV, the local stuff, but I, they were based in the same building as ITV Sport and I was getting on very well with them and uh, doing sort of doing tester shows 
And then I got the gig as uh, main sports presenter, which caused a few heads to turn because there were established people there and uh, I was only quite young. Um, so, yeah, it was, I remember going to Old Trafford for the first time and using that TV studio and thinking, blimey. Uh, and I was taken up to um, the director's box and from there into the secret director's box, which is the old one that only the, the privileged few get into, the wood-panelled one where the trophies are kept, when they had trophies. Uh, <laughs> and meeting the chairman and saying hello to Bobby Charlton, who luckily I'd known since I was a kid through my dad, who was a, a sports journalist. So it was all, yeah, it was fantastic brilliant to be doing and quite scary honestly as well um one one difference i could uh quickly ascertain is that sky were very professional and very helpful when they produced me because you you are completely reliant on your production team at itv some of that production was um let's say somewhat wanting mm. and, and the champions league i mean it it was such a big thing for, for itv to have at the time and and, and the format was very different. What are your thoughts on the format then uh, as opposed to, to what it's become now? I can't remember it. Um. <laughs> the first group stage, it was the first time the group stage but they had one and only the champions in second place went through. Yeah, I mean, as far as the form of the competition uh, was concerned, I didn't know any difference, so I wasn't too concerned about that. In terms of my job, when you're on Sky, you get time. Mm. Um, you know, they want to fill their time. With ITV, it's... A much more or was a much more commercial operation you have to go to the break and once you've gone to the break uh, you wrap up the program in a matter of minutes as opposed to an hour or so so that was a much dif more difficult discipline um, and I think a lot of people after and before me struggle with that I mean Des Lynham who's a personal hero the best of the lot mm. uh, at my game only lasted uh, one World Cup in fact after my World Cup no one bar uh, Adrian Childs got more than two in. It, I think it's an indication of BBC Sky and ITV being very different beasts. And that throwing to the break thing and rushing to get off air uh, is very difficult to cope with. Mm. You mentioned the World Cup. That's USA 94. For my personally, my favourite World Cup. How was it for you in a presenter role and experiencing it like in America? And what was very new at the time to, for America as well? Yeah, it's uh, oh, it's great. It was more... Uh, a continuation of what was a terrific ride at the time uh, to be hosting a World Cup. I, I remain the youngest person ever to do it, so that, that's a source of some pride. As for America, um, yeah, it was brilliant. They do things properly there, <laughs> even though uh, the games that I went to, although we were famously locked in a bunker in Dallas rather than up many of the games or any of the games, I just remember going there and the Americans were very enthusiastic, uh, completely confident or confident of their knowledge of the game which was somewhat sketchy and also desperate to get up every 10 minutes and go get a hot dog mm. or a beer they couldn't sit still but it remains amazingly the best attended world cup in history yeah the rose bowl had like something like 90,000 in it i remember for the final it's incredible yeah yeah you later in the decade went back to sky and one of one of the favorite things i always remember i remember it very fondly watching it as a kid as well was sky soccer weekend which is kind of preceded Sky Sports News as a, as a rolling channel in the magazine. What do you remember about that show? Because I remember you presenting it and it being quite a staple hold of Friday nights in my house. Yeah, well, that was great fun to do. And that was what, you know, Sky were and remain, I think, as far as they can be, uh, innovative. That's a word I'm very proud of being able to pronounce. Um, <laughs> so to, to put an hour-long show on of an evening, uh, we had lots of time to do things in depth. It was good fun. It was fairly relaxed. And I remember that was coupled with me hosting uh, the Bundesliga, which mm. was one of the, uh, the, the sports they actually had rights to. So that was a three-hour gig on a Friday night. Um, you wouldn't just 
you wouldn't do that on the BBC or ITV. You'd, you'd have half an hour and have a week to pre- prepare for it. So the, the great thing about Sky and for me was that it was live. And generally, um, I like to live on my wits. Mm. Some people say at the expense of doing any preparation, but you know, you can only do what you do. And I thoroughly enjoyed that. And so I made some great friendships there. And funnily enough, there were, we were looking for footballers or recently ex-footballers to use as pundits. Uh, and it was difficult to find them then, you know, you, you, they, even more than now, they were cliched and, and accused of not being too bright, which isn't the case. Uh, but we settled on to uh, Andy Townsend and Gareth Southgate, who didn't do too badly in the world of TV. And uh, I forget what Southgate's doing at the moment. Yeah, he did it right for himself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Uh, someone who watched a lot of games in the 90s, especially. I mean, for you, who were the players for you that stood out? Who did you enjoy watching the most? Uh, well, uh, there's no bias involved here, but anybody who played for West Ham, um, uh, the 90s were an up and down season, no different to any other any other team. Uh, I, my personal favourite was Stevie Potts, oh, okay. not least because he uh, he let me play in his testimonial. Um, and I thought this is a fantastic opportunity, one, to show how useless I am at football, but two, <laughs> to actually play at Upton Park. And uh, it was a, a sort of celebrity team and I was on the same outfit as Rod Stewart and David Essex and Bradley Walsh. She were all pretty good players, actually. I went in goal to hide my lack of fitness. Uh, and I claim it's because I put the goalkeeper's shirt over my West Ham shirt. I maybe looked a bit bulky, and um, this bloke kept shouting my name from the Bobby Moore stand. Matt, Matt, Matt. And I wasn't going to turn around because you're not supposed to do that. And after about 15 mats, <laughs> I turned around. I said, what? He said, would you like another pie? So I thought... <laughs> Very witty. Yeah, it's very witty indeed. Now you know what the goalkeepers have to put out with. Yeah. Yeah. And these days, I know you're involved in a Bobby Moore documentary as well. Tell us about that. Uh, yeah, that was a cinema feature that came out last May uh, and got really good reviews. I'm very happy about. Uh, I'm hoping to do another one uh, on Manchester United to celebrate the 50th anniversary of them winning the European Cup in 68. And I'm also... Um, doing a bit online at my grand old age. It's nice to be involved with what I think is the future of um, broadcasting or call it what you like in the football world at the moment. It's a firm called Football Whispers. Uh, they apply an algorithm to gossip and come out with an index of probability, which is a little bit beyond my understanding, but they do a TV show as well, which I host. And I thoroughly enjoy that. And it's definitely the future um, when you can go online and you know, form as, as you're doing just broadcast or get out there without any backing. Uh, it's it's the future. And I think you know, if, it, if you get that act together properly, as I think Football Whispers have done, uh, you're on to a winner. Brilliant. Well, very much nicely talking to you. I was a big fan of you in the day, and I will check out Football Whispers as well. Thank you very much for talking to us, Matt Lorenzo. Thank you. Cheers. Here we are then, talking 1992-93. A whole new ball game here on Alive and Kicking. And joining me to do so, firstly, a debut for us here on Alive and Kicking, someone who you might recognise our voices mesh quite well together because we speak on Gorilla Position, the brilliant podcast on TalkSport. Matt Davis, voice of Chelsea TV and TalkSport, welcome to the show. How are you doing, buddy? Hi, Ash. I'm good, thanks. This is a new experience for us, isn't it? Talking football, yes. We're not normally allowed to do this, are we? (laughs) They will be allowed to do it today, though, very much so. And joining him is now... A resident Man United voice for the 90s, especially in this countdown that we're doing season by season. Uh, straight after the Oral Oster Prince as well, Matthew Chris. Thank you for joining us again. Hi, Ash. How are you doing? You all right? I'm very well. Yeah, before we get started, I must give a shout out to you and the guys at Football Pink as well. 
um, who are producing a 90s sort of version of their magazine. And you contributed to it, didn't you? I did, yes. Uh, very exciting it was too. And obviously I, I thought of you guys when uh, when I was told it was going to be a 90s 90s special. And um, I contributed a piece all about the history of the Anglo-Italian Cup, which had something of a checkered past and ultimately died a death in the mid-1990s. So um, I didn't actually know there was that much uh, behind the competition until I wrote the article. So it was a uh, it was a, a bit of an experience for me, but but very enjoyable. Yeah, yeah. very random competition that because in the nineties it was about lower league teams as well, wasn't it? It was very random sort of oh, thing yeah. that happened. It, yeah, very. I think yeah, we I talked about that a couple of episodes ago with Joe Young, the Anglo Italian Cup. But yeah, Notts County, I remember doing quite well in that, didn't they? Notts County won it, and I think Birmingham had a good go. They uh, they had a bit of a, a go in it, but they they ended up playing a game where. There was a mass brawl at the end of the game and players got arrested. And uh, Well, I, I, you'll have to read the article. I'll, I'll leave oh, it at definitely, that. definitely, yeah. Check out that issue. Actually, <laughs> We've got the guys from Football Pink on next episode, so we'll be able to hear much more about that issue as well. Um, really Great looking stuff. forward to reading that, actually. I was, I was, going back to the Anglo-Italian Cup, I think the last game was Port Vale Genoa, which is just bizarre when you think of those two teams playing each other. But yeah, very well. Let's talk football CVs then. And firstly, let's go to Matt, because it's our debutant. And we're talking Nottingham Forest. He's a Nottingham Forest fan. So your favourite Nottingham Forest player of the 90s, Matt? Yeah, of the 90s is the um, is the stipulation to add, because everybody of my generation would say Stuart Pearce, but he kind of transcends many decades. So... Of good, the 90s, good early 90s. Good joke out there, yeah. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Um, early 90s, Stan Collymore was the man, only for two seasons, but he got Forrest pretty much, well, not single-handedly, but he scored a lot of goals to get us promoted back to the Premier League in the season after the one we're talking about today. And then he followed it up by getting, I think, 20 goals in 94-95 um, in the Premier League, which got him his move to Liverpool. But he was just raw, explosive, Scored brilliant goals, always got the ball back to goal on the halfway line, turned, outpaced a couple of defenders, then fired a low shot into the bottom corner. Always the same celebration with, you know, shooting the guns with his fingers. Uh, he was just really cool. Wore the number 10 shirt, great player. Should have done much better in his career, really. Yeah, he should have. His demons got the better of him. I remember speaking to Steve Chettle a couple of episodes ago, and actually he likened him in a way, to someone who maybe not as good, because it's ridiculous to say, but someone who's good England could have used as like Lionel Messi. He had that kind of raw talent that he never really quite, sort of, especially on the international stage, did he? No, not really. But, I mean, his best days were at Forest, is the thing, which you'd never have thought at the time. He obviously thought he was leaving for, for bigger and better things. And even when he left Liverpool to go to Aston Villa, which was his boyhood club, you thought that might be the move that worked out for him. But it was those two years very early in his career, even when he did, as he said, have demons and issues that he had to deal with, um, which kept him sore in missed games and things. That that definitely proved to be the most fruitful period of his career. He made his England debut, actually, at that summer, 95, in, I'm sure you remember, the Umbro Cup. Yeah, I was there, actually, bizarrely. I was at that game. Uh, Japan, I think it was. Yeah, Japan, 2-1, England won late on. Yeah, I remember that game. Yeah, it was on my birthday, if I remember rightly. Yeah, it was over the summer in June. Um, and your favourite player overall of the 90s? <laughs> Yeah, obvious pick, but I'm going to go for Alan Shearer just because he scored so many goals and the fact that he got over that injury early on in his career, which could easily have, it could have ended his career, but it certainly could have impacted it much more than it did in the end. Um, shame that he only ever got one Premier League winner's medal to show for it, I suppose. But then what price would you put on being the um, the hero of your boyhood club? 
Yeah, very much so. And you talk about that injury. It's it's crazy to think that if he hadn't had that injury, how many goals he would have scored? Because he's two sixty. Doesn't look like I know Wayne Rooney's edging closer and closer, but it doesn't look like anyone's getting near it really in, in history. And he scored so many goals despite was it? I think two injuries in the end, wasn't it? He had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and now you're looking at somebody would need what a ten year really clear run to get anywhere near that, and he, you know maybe ten to twelve years, and that's just. Players don't stay at clubs that long, for one thing. Of course, so yeah, yeah. You, you can. It's very, very hard to see that two sixty ever being beaten. I would say yeah. certainly not for a long time. Maybe someone like Harry Kane might be having a say, but that's keep it nineties and turn to to Matthew. Your second time on the show, so we're talking games. Your favourite May United game of the decade? Core. There's a plenty to bloody choose from as well, isn't there? Uh, yeah, there is, and I always feel very spoilt when uh, when I'm asked this question because obviously during this decade there are so many to choose from. It, uh, if it was a podcast about the eighties, I'd probably struggle. Although I'd probably give it a good go, but um, yeah, United in the nineties. I mean, I remember. A, a 5-0 demolition of Manchester City. I remember a cracking 3-2 comeback at Main Road. There was obviously the 99 treble season with the the comeback against Barcelona, the Juventus game. But I'm going to go right back to the beginning of the decade. April the 8th, I think it was. 1990, FA Cup semi-final, Manchester United 3, Oldham 3. Strange, strange choice, I'm sure many people will think but I just think for that at that time United were having a stinker of a season they nearly got relegated that season believe it or not uh, Ferguson had only been there a couple of years it was hanging on to the job by his fingernails but the semi-final I just thought had everything it was a real thriller of a game Oldham went 1-0 up early on United battled back through Robson ended up going 2-1 ahead Oldham made it 2-2 went to extra time United went 3-2 up it looked like they'd got the job done and then Oldham equalised again to make it 3-3. And it was just, I just thought it was an epic semi-final. It was a, a sunny day, main road, neutral ground, obviously. Um, an absolute thriller. And and one of those games that even now I can put on YouTube after a couple of pints, after I come back from the pub and, and watch it as though I haven't seen it before. It's, it's, that, it's that enjoyable to me. Was it Mark Robbins as well scored in that game, wasn't it? He he scored in the replay. In the it, went, replay <coughs> it, went, yeah. it was 3-3 three, three, and then it went to a replay uh, three days later. And that was tight as well. I think a lot of people thought well, after the, the first game that um, it was going to be straightforward. But United went 1-0 up through McClare. And then Andy Ritchie equalised and they went to extra time again. And it, it just seemed like it was going to be one of those games that never, never got settled. But Mark Robbins scored in, uh, in extra time to take United to Wembley. I mean, that was the cup run that really he made his name and, and allegedly saved Alex Ferguson's job. Yeah, that's what after. I was going to say. He, he, that's what he's known for, really, isn't it, that season as well, yeah. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. And outside of Old Trafford, your, your favourite game of the 1990s? Well, actually, it's the very same day. Um, a few hours before that United oh, semi-final, Liverpool semi-final played weekend. Crystal Palace. Yeah, well, it was the, the epic weekend, the first ever time the semi-finals have been played on the same day, live on television, I think Liverpool kicked off against Crystal Palace about one o'clock, a few hours before United. And again, an absolutely epic game. Liverpool were at the top of their form still. They'd won the league or they were on their way to winning the league that season quite comfortably. Palace were in a, in a bad way. Liverpool had actually beaten Palace 9-0 in the league um, that October or November, I think it was. So everyone just expected it to be a, a bit of a walkover on a sunny day at at Villa Park and it was anything but an absolute classic and again I could have chosen a lot of games from the 90s I know you spoke about the um, 
the four three Liverpool Newcastle a few weeks ago, and there was there was a cracker with Oldham and Southampton. If you remember, was it another four three that kept Southampton up, or it was another relegation dogfight? But uh, there's just something about that 1990 semi-final weekend. I just thought it was it was pivotal. It was a, it was one of those weekends. If you remember it, you'll always remember it, and, and I can happily watch both games again. It's very. And, I can't uh, think of two. I mean, the, we'll talk about the, the season, this season, those two semi-finals. They were pretty big, but as games, I can't think of two better semi-finals off the top of my head as a collective no. than those two. They were great games. And that's the funny thing. I mean, after the four-three game, I mean, it, it was such an epic. And obviously, uh, being a United man, I obviously was pleased at the outcome. And, and the, the Palace Liverpool game finished, and then you had about an hour at the most, I think, before the United game kicked off. So it was a real case of. Oh, hang on! There's another game here, and, and quite often you'd think that well, the second game would just be a, you know, a damn squid. But anything but. I mean, it, it, if anything, it was a, it was a better game. So to have those two games on the same day, both on BBC television, probably in front of an audience of about thirty million people back then, it was just a it was just a fantastic day. So I could have chosen many, but that it, I just thought those two were my uh, my picks. No, good, good, good choices. But that's turned to then a couple of seasons later. That's talk 1992-93, a whole new ball game as it was titled there by Sky. And Sky very much part of the setting the scene, I suppose, if you like. Because, Matthew, we, we spoke on the last show about how different 91-92 to 92-93 was. Even though they were just a few months apart, but there really was such a vast difference, wasn't there? There was. I mean, I mean, this this was really the season where old met new really and, and it was strange because not a lot really happened but obviously the season before that you had the end of the ITV deal you had it was the no more Saints and Greavesy it was the old first division championship trophy as it was then and then suddenly overnight you had this whole new packaging around football I mean football in it on the field hadn't changed too much but suddenly you had uh, obviously the Sky broadcast deal made a heck of a lot of difference because you had all these games on television that weren't on television. Uh, you had the Monday night games, the Super Sunday games. You had hours of build-up. You had a lot of coverage of the of the game itself. So even though the the football probably hadn't, it took a while for the football to change in terms of what you saw on the pitch because obviously the players were the same, the teams were relatively the same. But just the way I think we uh, consumed football changed, and it, and it changed very much in this season. Yeah, that, let's give a little bit, bit of background on, on the season of the Premier League. I mean, it, it was Rupert Murdoch who kind of got the FA and the, the breakaway happening because he was sniffing around. He'd taken over B-Sky B in the early 90s and was looking for that next juggernaut of a, of a sort, of, sort of pinnacle that he could add to his collection. And it was a new league that he kind of suggested. And the breakaway was agreed on the 17th of July 1991, um, where it was said that money could be given to just the clubs in the top league rather than filter all the way down the leagues which wasn't great for the whole of the rest of the football league but even the FA thought that this was a possible good idea and in fact even quoted to saying it may help the England team ironically to see what actually happened later in the decade and, and since as the England team hasn't really benefited as much from the Premier League but it was Sky TV of course in their infancy that took on the Premier League on the back of that agreement after the all top 22 teams resigned from the Football League in 1992 to join the Premier League. And it was born, the Premier League, 19, August 1992. And, and Matt, what do you remember about those, those early moments and, and the initiation of the Premier League? Well, yeah, as you say, the, the Sky thing was obviously massive. But I just remember the reports of how close it was to being ITV. You've mm. got it. And Greg Dyke, who obviously went on to um, be in charge of 
DFL, but the chief executive of the FA until recently. Um, he was behind that deal. So the whole football landscape really could have changed quite significantly. Obviously, had, uh, it was good going into it as well because there'd been a good title race the year before between um, United and Leeds, hadn't there? Which I think was important for the Premier League in its first season and that it, it sort of it went into it with some momentum because of that. Yeah, it was a great title race we talked about in the last show. And you mentioned the ITV uh, deal there. They were they were favourites to get the TV coverage, actually, because they had it the season before. We talked about the match last time out on the show. But Sky absolutely blew them out of the water and its reported fee of £305 million. I couldn't find what ITV, what ballpark they were playing in, but apparently Sky completely blew everyone out of the water with that figure. Took on the Premier League. Alum come alive and kicking and everything else with it. What are your first memories, Matthew, from, from those early days of Sky and, and taking on the Premier League? Well, it would have to be the uh, the advert, won't it? I mean, you, you, you mentioned alive and kicking there. That, that famous... Um, well, it gives me goosebumps Sky, just thinking about it. Yeah, famous Sky television advert. I'm not sure when that would have... That must have been broadcast a few few weeks before the season started. Yeah, but, they normally start um, in sort of late July, those season adverts. Yeah, but it, it, was, it, it had everything, didn't it? And, and the funny thing about that ad is it, it was so glitz and glamour and uh, and everything that went with this whole new ball game but it was still the same old players that we'd seen probably for the last 10 years of English football dressed up with all this uh, this hullabaloo that was that was surrounding the Premier League I mean you had Andy Ritchie you had John Walk you had Gordon Strachan you had a, it, there was something about it that was just a, a little bit uh, funny and, and if you remember Paul Stewart turning up in his uh, Porsche at the gates of uh, at White Hart Lane and probably in a block or something yeah yeah I mean that was probably a glimpse of what was to come with the Premier League I mean more more sort of 10 years down the line possibly but at the time it just seemed a bit strange I remember thinking you know there's these footballers here and they're involved in some sort of television advert that looks like it's a trailer for a, a new movie but it in fairness it worked because it captured everyone's imagination we're obviously still talking about it now yeah, I mean, I watched that advert repeatedly. I know it was actually tweeted by the Football Pink actually recently because of their issues yeah. we mentioned earlier. And you, and Paul Stewart, who's even wearing a shell suit in that as well. It's not yes. like he's even come to work in a, in a suit or some sort of trendy outfit. He's wearing a proper 90s shell suit and they're all working out <laughs> in the gym. Matt, I mean, what are your memories of this brilliant, brilliant advert? And obviously the theme tune that, that the podcast spins off. Well, there's a couple of things that I'm just looking at a picture actually of the um, the lineup of the 25 on our Twitter feed yeah a couple of things that, that caught my attention one is that Hans Sagers is the only non-British or Irish player amongst um, all the players I think yeah 25 there is and the other thing is that there's maybe not quite half but maybe a third of the shirts that the players are wearing so they're obviously all wearing their own um, team's kits for that season they don't have sponsors. So no, they don't. They must have been late calls. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you know, I think some some shirts just didn't. I remember that the Sheffield Wednesday one in particular didn't have a sponsor up until the League Cup final of this year, and then they had Mr. Tom. They did, um, but they yeah, they generally didn't have sponsors. You think how the league is now? I mean, that's it's just incredible to think that really, isn't it? Yeah, I think that well, next season we'll be seeing sleeve sponsors, aren't we? Which is going to end up like France with all those different sponsors on the shirts, which I hate. But yeah, I hadn't noticed that. You're right, actually, because Leeds haven't got it, Borough. But they did once the season kicked off, so it must have been a really early photo call on that one. But Scott... I think there was some trepidation there. I think maybe clubs really didn't know what they were going into. Mm. It was such a, it was such a, such a switch from what we'd known. And obviously, with the uh, B Sky B uh, arrangement, so many people didn't have satellite television, understandably. 
and uh, maybe maybe companies were reluctant to put their name to club shirts that they thought, ironically, that people wouldn't wouldn't actually see a lot of. Mm. If only they knew. Very interesting. Well, Sky, as well as that brilliant, brilliant advert with all them working out in the gym and, and redi- uh, the, the brilliant ridiculousness of that advert, go back and watch it. I'll put it on Twitter later. It's fantastic. But they also brought a Super Sunday, which was completely a whole new sort of all-day affair because we've been used to FA Cup final day. And Sky t- kind of took that and ran with it. And we kind of had a build-up from one o'clock, kick-off at four, which was unusual. I think they were trying to get that sort of tea time audience and then you had Richard Keys and his multicoloured jackets and, and all that and then Monday night football of course as well with the, the dancing girls, the sumo wrestlers the fireworks, I mean it was like an all American affair wasn't it Matthew? It was and in fairness I, I've heard Richard Keys talk about this in, in the years gone by and he said that they, Sky really had to sell their product, he said it, they'd, they'd put all their eggs in one basket they had this product that they needed to sell it wasn't like it was a BBC production where they had licence uh, fees payers money so they really had to sell it and, and they did and at the time I wasn't that keen on it because it just felt so alien from what we were used to but I suppose the fact we're talking about it now and it it did make such an impression I mean you, you talk about the Monday night games that was probably the biggest thing I remember the the uh, the kerfuffle about that at the time because people were saying well it's just not right that teams are going to have to travel the length of the country and fans are going to have to travel on a Monday night um, I mean you mentioned the, the first ever Monday night game which you will remember well, being will, yeah. QPR away. I'll, I'll let you mention it, yeah, of course. Yeah, I think it was, now, let me think now, wasn't it QPR away at Manchester it City? Was, yeah, one all draw, Andy Sinton, screamer from the edge of the box, wearing our Dennis Domenis hoops, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that was another game that, you know, I think they had the somebody parachute down onto the pitch, yeah. and then they had the 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 Skyettes or whoever the dance <laughs> troupe the were. The, is, yeah. they, they did, I'm sure they had a name, but... Um, but it captured the imagination. It's still controversial now to think that teams can be made to play at the other end of the country on a Monday night. But if the fact it's happened for the last 25 years would probably suggest it works. Yeah, well, Friday night as well these days as well. But that's, yeah, that's for yeah. another podcast. But we're talking of the first Monday night football, the first ever Super Sunday, Matt. You'll remember quite fondly, won't you? Yeah, yeah. It was Forrest um, hosting Liverpool. And it all looked very good at that point. Forrest won 1-0. Teddy Sheringham scored. We thought we were in for a good season. That proved to be his last goal for the club. He was sold to Spurs a couple of weeks later. And that was the last game we won uh, until the middle of October. Yeah, well, we'll talk about it later. But what I do remember, other than sharing a screamer of a goal as well, that was a great goal, but the kit as well. And I know we disagree on this, but for me, that is one of Forrest's more from, probably best ever kit. I love the pinstripe collar, but it's not gone down well on the city ground, is it? No, no, I couldn't. I couldn't um, disagree with you more on that. And one, <laughs> one um, Teddy Sheringham anecdote that's just popped uh, into my mind from around that time was uh, he signed the season before it would have been for Forest, and apparently one of his first days as a Forest player, he came uh, down the hall to go into the changing room and bumped into Brian Clough, and Brian Clough said to him, "Ah, oh, Edward, delighted to meet you." And uh, Sheringham said, "Ah, oh, yeah, nice to meet you too, boss. Uh, by the way, I, I prefer being called Teddy." And Cliff said, right you are, Edward, right you are. <laughs> Brilliant. More from the master later on, Brian Clough. I'm sure we've got some lots of great stories. Actually, we've had a couple of guys on the pod in the past go back and listen to them. Always tell a great Brian Clough story. While we're quickly talking to kits, this just occurred to me as well. It can't be worse than that 
yellow kit later in the decade with the weird writing. I mean, I love it because it's a monstrosity, but that's a bad kit, surely. That can't be. I've got that, that one. Yeah, yeah. We in Nottingham we call that um, vomit after ten pints in a curry. That kit. <laughs> it's the Labatt's one, isn't it? Yes. It's got all the yeah, yeah. It's really, really disgusting. I've got that with Bart Williams six on the back. So. There's probably nothing more looks. 90s than that shirt and Chris Bart Williams' name. Lord, <laughs> it was expensive, by the way, to get Bart Williams. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah. <laughs> Not the same as Ian Wone, was it? It won't have been much no. cheaper. Anyway, let's talk uh, what happened in the actual pitch and in the actual season on, on in 1993. I, like, I mean, we could talk all day about Sky and get an analytical view, but we want to talk about the whole season as a summary, and we can't talk about the season without Manchester United's glorious title win. They're first for 26 years but I was researching this earlier, Matthew, and I didn't realise that they didn't lead the way until very late on in that season. Obviously, you had Norwich and the sensational season that they had. They were leading the way at Christmas. Villa, who went all the way until that game at Oldham. And there, and Blackburn sniffing around as well on the money they'd spent, on, of course, on Alan Shearer. They spent a record fee, £3.3 million on him. He'd scored on his debut against Palace and went on to, to obviously be a score a lot of goals that season. And then what, what happened following in the decade as well with Blackburn and stuff, which we'll talk about in a few episodes later. But it didn't start all well, did it, for Man United that season? No, you're right. And actually, United didn't top the table that season until the 28th of December when they beat Coventry 5-0 at home. Up until then, it was a very iffy start. I mean, we spoke the other week about the 91-92 season, and, and as Matt said, it was a, it was a thrilling uh, finale to that season. But from a United point of view, it was a disaster. They were, they were leading the way. It looked like they were going to win the league, and they ended up surrendering the lead, and, and Leeds went on to win it. And the problem the following season was, I think there was a bit of a hangover to that season, certainly amongst the fans. Uh, people wondering how United would react to that that crushing blow and the beginning of that season it looked like they hadn't reacted well at all the first game of the season they went down to Sheffield United away the first ever goal scored in the Premier League by friend of the show Brian Dean yeah he was on our first ever episode yeah Brian Dean yeah fantastic interview go back into the archives and listen to that yes definitely and uh, yeah United didn't they didn't win a game actually for their first it was the fourth game of the season away at Southampton another Monday night game that we were talking about uh, they scraped a 1-0 win away at Southampton thanks to the new signing Dion Dublin um, but it, it didn't start well at all for United that that win at Southampton did actually kick them on to a run of, of five consecutive wins but it was it was all a bit scruffy and I don't remember anyone at the time really feeling that United were in, in with the hope of winning the league up until around about Funnily enough, about the end of November, when a certain Frenchman signed for United from Leeds. Well, let's talk about that, seeing as you've brought it up. I mean, it's the famous story that it wasn't even the, the deal wasn't even about Cantona initially, was it? It was Harold Wilkinson inquiring about Dennis Irwin, and then Cantona got in on the subject, and somehow the transfer happened. It's a silly question, I know, and I'm, but it's one I'm fascinated to ask Man United fans. But how big an impact did King Eric make at that point in in the season? Oh yeah, he had a huge impact. But it's well, it's one of those things where you you realise it now looking back. I remember I remember the day well that Cantona signed. I remember a friend of mine from school came running round to the house, knocking on the door. Obviously, before the days of phone mobiles and, and tweeting and what have you, there was a knock on the door, and this excited friend of mine telling me, "Have you heard the news? Have you heard the news?" And to be honest, I, I was a bit underwhelmed at the time. I think United were linked with a few names at the beginning of that season: Alan Shearer, David Hurst. And obviously those transfers never came about. And to be to be told United to sign Cantona, who at the time was a bit of a, a bit of a struggling journeyman, he'd never really 
made a name for himself in this country. He'd struggled to settle. He was, he'd upset several managers. So I must admit, I did think, well, what, what on earth is that all about? But obviously, with the beauty of hindsight, being able to look back, he, he just made a, a huge difference, particularly that season and at, at that time. Because as, as we spoke about the uh, the other week, the season before, United had struggled. They were lacking leaderships when when they were in winning positions. They they lacked somebody there that could really take the team by the scruff of the neck. And when Cantona turned up, he didn't do it all on his own. Obviously, there was still Brian Robson there, Steve Bruce, Pallister, Schmeichel. But he just instilled this feeling of belief, I think, in the team. And he, he joined at the end of November and he came on a substitute against Manchester City the following week in a game which United won. And then again, it just started off a little run where United obviously did well over Christmas and went to the top of the table. And, and, and even when he wasn't scoring goals or doing too much on the pitch, he, he just brought with him that belief. And obviously I can't speak for what went on behind the scenes, but from what you read and what you hear, he just, he just gave the club an enormous boost of confidence, which this season of all seasons, I think was, was evident for everyone to see. Let's bring Matt in about, about Cantona. I mean, what do you remember about that transfer? It was, it was kind of an odd one that came out of nowhere, but it really did make the difference for them, didn't it? Yeah, it really did. And, and something that's just come to my mind, actually, is talking about how um, in that alive and kicking picture, how there was only one foreign player. Now, Cantona, in many ways, was um, he sort of opened the door for foreign mm, players in, course, in English yeah. football, didn't he? He was, he was the first big star, which is odd because he wasn't imported as a star, he was he was sort of made as a star here, and, and at Man United in particular. But after him, it became normal for foreign players to, to be brought in because of the success that he's had. He had, but you wouldn't have thought that when he was struggling to get a contract at Sheffield Wednesday, what months a year earlier. Yeah, that famous. I think they had an indoor trial, if I remember rightly. It's on YouTube somewhere of him in a Sheffield Wednesday shirt without a sponsor. Now you mention it, and he, he never quite made it to Sheffield Wednesday. But he obviously went to Leeds. They won the league. They won the charity shield that year as well. One of the best charity shields of the decade, and he really did make the difference. And in the second half of the season, I mean, the game that everyone talks about. And I think it was the eighth of April because we put it on Twitter. Uh, no, tenth. Sorry, the tenth of April. It was the Sheffield, Sheffield Wednesday game at Old Trafford that everyone talks about. Steve Bruce's two late goals. Fergie time was invented. Matthew, you were there. That really was the game that turned the tide. After Norwich started to falter, they lost to, Norrie, uh, lost to Ipswich sorry, uh, and a few games around that. But that game really was the moment they thought Man United might just well do this. Yeah, it was. It was huge. I think it's worth putting, a, putting it into a bit of context. Um, like I said, after Christmas, United went on an incredible run. I think they only, won, only lost two games uh, between December and March. So they were they were really going for it. Like you say, Norwich were flying. They deserve a lot of credit for this season, really, because uh, nobody expected them to do well. And they, they led the way right up until Christmas. But um, going into this game, it was very much between United and Villa. I think, I think they were level on points going into this game, or maybe Villa were a point ahead. So it was real... Real nip and tuck, and um, what everyone thought would be a pretty non-eventful game turned out to be pretty eventful. Um, not least when the referee got injured midway through the second half, um, he, he put, uh, pulled a calf muscle, I think, or a hamstring. Uh, Mike Peck, I think his name was, and um, he had to come off. A linesman had to come on. John Hilditch. They had to move everyone around. That took ultimately six or seven minutes, and we all know what happened there. Um, but before that. The referee, the new referee, John Hilditch, one of his first jobs was to point to the spot after Paul Lintz gave away a clumsy penalty. And uh, lifelong United fan John Sheridan stepped up, 
and put Sheffield Wednesday into the lead on the 65th minute. And I just remember the feeling around that ground was one of, here we go again, this time last, exactly this time last year, we'd thrown it away and it looked like United were going to do that, exactly the same thing again, until the 86th minute when, I I think it was a cross or a corner came over and Steve Bruce managed to get on the end of it and head home and equaliser. Somehow it got through a crowd of Sheffield Wednesday defenders and the keeper. It was a bit of a, a scrappy goal, but obviously it saved the day. And then in that 10 minutes of injury time that had come about through the uh, bizarre injury to the referee, um, a Gary Pallister cross deflected off, I think it was, I can't remember who it was, one of the Sheffield Wednesday fullbacks. And uh, Steve Bruce was there to head it into the corner again. And the whole, the whole ground erupted. I think it was more relief than delight. It was just a sheer relief that United hadn't, blown it and they were right in this title hunt and and because the game had gone on so late Villa's game had finished several minutes before that and they'd actually drawn nil nil home to Coventry so from throwing the league away over a period of 10-15 minutes United actually gained a couple of points and, and and it really put United in the driving seat for the for the rest of that season for the running itself yeah, it was an amazing day. And you've got a picture of Fergie running on the pitch with Brian Kidd as well. It's it's one yeah. of those iconic images of that season. Matt, what what are your memories of that? I mean, obviously, as a neutral like me, it was one of those wow moments of the season, wasn't it? You know what? <laughs> my my memory of this game, obviously, apart from Fergie and Brian Kidd running on, is after during the scoring of the first goal, um, Steve Bruce heads it, and on the line for Sheffield Wednesday is Nigel Worthington. And he stands with his hand, one hand on the post and the other on his hip. Like he looks like he's waiting for a bus. He does, yeah. <laughs> and the ball goes over his head and somebody, um, you know, I think it's Brian McClare, bumps into him in trying to score. And he almost looks annoyed that somebody's knocked yeah. him over. He's made no attempt to play. It was really, really strange and, and very, very funny just to watch him sort of stand there totally unaware that his team were conceding a goal. Yeah, I remember that actually. Now you say it, yeah, very, very funny moment, um, and and that game turned the tide for Manchester United. It didn't kind of it, after that. It was really their title to win. Twenty six yeah. years, Matthew. I mean, it was it's been such a sort of monkey around the neck, and in the end, what? How did it feel to finally secure that league title? Oh, it was incredible. I mean, obviously, I hadn't been around for all those those years. I mean, sixty seven was the last time United won it uh, under Busby. And, and that just felt such a long time ago. I know it sounds stupid because it was a long time ago, but I remember in that era, you know, we, I was always brought up with pictures of that 67 team with Busby and and a young best and, and Law and all that. And it was hard to believe that was in the same sort of generation. So when this finally came about, it was it was such a big deal. I mean, it, it really was. And, and something that many of us thought we would never see, especially after what had happened the season before. And it And it wasn't plain sailing. I mean, after that, Sheffield Wednesday game, it put it put the ball back in United's court, but they still had to. I think they won every game again that season. After that, they they won every game. So, so you know, it, it wasn't in doubt really. But it, none of us believed it until um, until we got to Sellers Park on the last game of the season, and uh, it was all over. But such a such a huge relief. I mean, even to this day, even having watched United win many so many league titles since, it, you just it's still. It's a huge moment, and and again, you can only imagine what would have happened if they if they'd blown it that season as well. I just don't think they would have recovered from that. But huge, huge moment. Mm. The, the two things that I always remember from the, from the sort of the end of the season is that Gary Pallister's goal, of course, because he was the only player who hadn't yeah. scored that season, and he scored that free kick 
Um, was it Oldham you were playing? Or, no, Blackburn. No, it was Black, Blackburn, Blackburn on the, uh, I think it was a Monday night, back yeah. holiday Monday. I think it was, yeah. And Matt Busby in the crowd as well. I remember yeah. that moment. And also, this is complete geek out from me and, and people on the podcast will know how much I love these sort of things. But the medals that season weren't medals. Yeah. They were, they were mini, uh, mini cups, yeah. Yeah, little Premier League trophies. I mean, yeah. how cool, like a little, I've got a little Sabuto version that sits on my shelf in my office. And that's what they were like. I thought that was brilliant. Yeah. They should have kept with that. Um, Matt, what your memories of Man United as a team? Were they winners for you in, in that season? They were just about. I remember it being a really exciting title race, though. Um, I think it, Norwich and Villa were more of sort of the, the neutrals pick, just because yeah. uh, you know they well Villa obviously got the history, but Norwich certainly never come anywhere near to to something like that. And the, the next year they go on to that great run in the UEFA Cup as well. But it was just the steal about Man United, particularly in the second half of the season. And like you, Ash, I remember that Gary, it was a free kick Gary Pallister yeah. scored, wasn't it? And it was an injury time. It was pretty much the yeah. last kick of the season. And as you say, he was the last player to score. And that, that sort of summed Man United up that season, really. They got a couple of pretty easy wins against Forest. Um, <laughs> one in August, which which maybe turned United's season round to a certain extent, and they won two nil at the City Ground after beating Southampton a week before, and that started them on a, a, a long, long unbeaten run. But yeah, they were they were definitely definitely worthy winners in the end, and 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 by the end they they pretty much cruised it, didn't they? I seem to remember that Sheffield Wednesday game came in the middle of a run of six or seven straight wins which which propelled them to the title in the end. Yeah, I think I think they, they won seven in a row and, and it, it coincided with after the Sheffield Wednesday swing, it obviously knocked all the wind out of uh, Aston Villa's sails. So, obviously, United were in the driving seat after that, won seven in a row and with Villa dropping points. I think they ended up winning it by about uh, uh, 10 points they won it by so but it, but if somebody looking back you'd never believe they'd won the league by 10 points because it was so close going into that Easter period but it was obviously it was obviously Villa's uh, crumble at the end that that uh, made it look more convincing than it re- than it really was mm. it's that famous story as well because I remember Villa were on the TV that was Oldham wasn't it they were playing up they lost to Oldham, they had Oldham yeah. on the TV and they lost and I think Sky had a couple of uh, May night players at home on an, on another sort of split screen watching it as well, which was which classic yeah. for the time. And then Fergie uh, was remember. apparently on the golf course, wasn't he? And somebody yeah, he was, was playing in golf. And, yeah, somebody came over and said, congratulations, Mr. Ferguson. Um, you've just won the league. I, I remember that Oldham game. Everyone was going around a friend's house to watch it. I couldn't, I couldn't bear to watch. So I just walked around the block for two hours listening to the Wonder stuff on my personal stereo. There's a great 90s reference as well, but I just couldn't bear to be anywhere near it. I just thought, I'll walk around for an hour, and by the time I get back, it'll all be over. And sure enough, I got back, and and it was 1-0, and yeah, party time then. Party time. Well, from one end of the table to the other, I'm sorry, Matt, we've got to do it. And it's part of the reason why you're on. I mean, I've got, I have really got, as I said to you before, a soft spot for Nottingham Forest, um, but this wasn't a memorable season for them, but kind of poignant in the same way because of Brian Clough. But before we talk about sort of Clough and what he meant to Forest, what went wrong that season? Well, it started in the summer. Uh, Des Walker was sold to Sampdoria. Mm-hmm. That was yeah. a killer blow. He was he's legitimately lays claim to being one of our best ever players. Uh, but he You'll fancied... never beat him, apparently. Well, yeah, that was the case. But then when he got into Serie A, he was beaten week in, week out. <laughs> yeah, they but... played him at left back. It didn't come to Italian, time. did it? No, no. So that, uh, that, was, that was a blow. And we also sold, who would have been his natural replacement, Darren Wassell, to Derby after he had a round with Brian Clough. So that was part of the problem we didn't go into the season in good shape as I say Teddy Sheringham left for Spurs after the first game 
uh, after scoring that goal against Liverpool. And we brought in people like Gary Bannister, who was a striker who came in on a free from West Brom to replace him. And he got four goals all season. We also got Neil Webb back in the November and from United, but he'd had a serious injury when he was at United and he was never the same player he was during his first spell at Forest. So they were all contributing factors, but I mean, we, we made a, a poor start after that Liverpool game. We, we, we lost the next six and didn't pick up another one until October. So we were really behind the eight ball from, from September. And, and the big thing, of course, was, was that Brian Clough wasn't the man he once was. And he also didn't have Stuart Pearce for most of the season. He only played nine games that season. And he, he later wrote in his autobiography, Pearce, that he'd had a fallout with Clough that season and he felt it affected him quite badly so we were we were really without our main source of goals our two best players and and in effect without our manager in a lot of ways as well was it a season too far for Brian Clough do you think I mean it was a sad way to end and the green jumper I always remember on the last day as well that interview where he he was kind of sad and happy at the same time happy to be retiring but sad the way he left it do you think maybe it was a season too far for Brian yeah I think I mean obviously it's easy to say that in retrospect but as I mentioned, those cup finals that we got to in the years preceding the 92-93 season, the one domestic trophy that Brian Clough never won was the FA Cup. So if, if we'd beaten Spurs in the 1991 mm. final, um, which we may well have done if the referee had done his job and sent Paul Gascoigne off, then he might have retired then. But he, it's, such a sad, it, it, it's so sad that he, in a lot of ways that year, became a figure of ridicule because I don't think there was the understanding about things like alcoholism and how it is an illness in the way that there is now. So it was just sort of point and laugh at him. I remember a, a, a game away at Spurs that season where he was stood on the touchline trying to coerce the team as a manager normally would, but he couldn't stop trembling and his face was red and blotchy. And it was just, I mean, particularly for not, not kids like me so much, but people like my mum who had a season ticket when we won the league and then went on to win the European Cup twice. It was really sad to see him in that particular state. And the, and the game you mentioned, Ash, against Sheffield United, which was the final home game of that yeah. season, we lost 2-0. That was the game that we were relegated in. Um, even the Sheffield United fans were singing his name because we knew at that point that that was his final game. And to be honest with you, nobody harboured any ill feelings about the fact that Forrest got relegated in his final season because Nottingham Forest would be nothing, nowhere near the sort of club and the sort of status that they enjoy at the moment without... Brian Clough so it was it's a really sad footnote that that's how it ended but what a, what a manager he was for yeah. the vast vast majority of his time it's, it's probably one of the easiest questions like I said to, to Matthew and, and Cantona but I mean for a not for his fan because I know your Twitter profile you have a picture of Clough isn't it as your as your avatar so mm. I mean how, how much does he mean to a Forest fan I mean as I say he literally he, he, I always think Without Brian Clough, Forrest would be a club on a par with, say, Middlesbrough, mm. somebody like that. Somebody who's had a solid but unspectacular history. You're talking about, people talk about what a great achievement it was for Leicester to win the Premier League. And it's really, really difficult to compare eras, I think. But that was an amazing achievement that Leicester did. But Forrest, back in the 70s, got promoted from the old Division 2, won the league the season after, and then won the European Cup twice, which is just... That, uh, that will never happen again. Leicester winning the league yeah. is remarkable enough. But he then went on to have this second great team, um, which bled through into the 90s and reached all these cup finals. And of course, we got his son as a result of having Brian as the manager. And Nigel Clough's one of my favourite ever Forest players, one of our leading goal scorers of all time. And 
Yeah, you can't you can't underestimate what Brian Clough means to Forest. I mean, I'm looking down at my dog at the moment, who's called Brian. <laughs> I'm sure he's not the only one uh, from Forest fans. It's just a shame that it did. And and the thing was, the board sort of forced him out as well that year. There were a couple of um, the chairman and a couple of board members who had realised that it, he wasn't capable of running things day to day because alcoholism had gotten the better of him. And it was a very sort of sour way in, in the way that he left. You know, if, if, if we'd been relegated that year, but he'd said, I'm going to retire at the end of this season, that would have been different. But the fact that he was he was pushed rather than he jumped made it even worse. Mm. Matthew, for you, memories of Forrest? I mean, obviously that season was, was disappointing, but as a team and, and Brian Clough as a manager? Yeah, I, I have to admit, I've got a very soft spot for Forrest. I mean, obviously the older people amongst us listening will remember the great team of that uh, won the league and the European Cup but but as Matt said there in the late or mid late 80s they still had a fantastic side I mean they were always you know, people talk about the big five but and I don't think Forrest were ever included in that but they were always up there I mean, they had a fantastic side with people like Pierce and Chettle and and, and Walker and, and and I have to say from a United point of view I'm surprised I've got a soft spot because They've actually did us over a couple of times. They knocked us out mm-hmm. in the FA Cup quarter final in um, '89, which I remember well. And then they cost us the league in the '92 season by winning at Old Trafford on um, on Bank Holiday Monday. But all that forgotten. I actually thought Forest were a fantastic team in that era, and um, certainly I echo everything that was said there about Clough and what he achieved. In, in his time I still argue with people now they say oh Leicester winning the league was the greatest thing you'll ever see and I say no to go to get promoted from the second division and then to win the league and then to win the European Cup and then to win it again and not spend the money and not you know and they'd probably only win it with 13, 14, 15 players over a season none of this squad rotation anything like that I mean to me what Forrest and what Clough achieved is still the greatest thing and probably will never be beaten yeah, that's a good point. It's, it's such a, it's, I mean, it's just that green jumper. It's just a sad moment, that final moment of, of Nottingham Forest this season. But we'll talk about their bounce back into under Frank Clark, of course, um, in a couple of episodes' time. Uh, moving on then slightly to the, the cup competitions. And something that gets my goat that I've talked on this one before is that the, the semi-finals were played at Wembley for the first time when Arsenal met Tottenham and the Sheffield Derby. We we're going to be all neutral now. Um, so I'll come to you first, Matt. And what are your memories of the FA Cup? And those, I mean, I, they were big games, those semi-finals, weren't they? But for me, not at Wembley. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Not not at Wembley would, would be ideal. But then, you know, these days you do, I've noticed a bit of a change in the rhetoric of managers over the last few years where you get to quarter-final stage and, and they're sort of bigging up the possibility of playing at Wembley rather than saying that it shouldn't be played at Wembley. But I certainly remember the, the Sheffield derby um, because... David Hurst was one of my um, one of my nineties legends as well, and that, <laughs> so that, I love a random love. Yeah, go on. <laughs> and that that was kind of it was just the city emptying for the day and, and decamping to Wembley, wasn't it? And yeah, it was fantastic. Sheffield Sheffield Wednesday get to the finals of both cups that year. They did, yeah. Of course, we'll talk about Steve Morrow in a second and that and that famous injury. Um, Matthew, you, you talked semi-finals at the top of the show. I mean, those were two great ones as well. I mean, Chris Waddle. Got, stole the headlines with that free kick echoing Gascoigne in 91 as well but they were two good games weren't they two good games yeah I had to pull you up on one thing because remember the um, semi-final between Arsenal and Tottenham was played at Wembley was it a couple of years oh, before was, this of course, no, yes, the 1991 yeah. wasn't yeah. it I mean that was controversial at the time and I think when Arsenal drew Tottenham again they basically had no choice but to play it at Wembley again and because of that they felt they had to offer it to uh, 
to the two Sheffield sides, which I think was a big mistake. But um, but in fairness, the two semi-finals, they almost warranted them. If it, if it was ever going to be justified, maybe those two semi-finals were the only mm. exception. Because like you say, there you know 30-odd thousand from each Sheffield club there and, and the two North London clubs. And um, yeah, two two cracking semi-finals actually, which is rare for um, in the modern era of semi-finals at Wembley. I don't actually think we've seen many great semi-finals at Wembley. So to have... I know it's the old Wembley and the new Wembley, which to me are completely different things. But um, but yeah, that was probably one of the years where where the semi-finals at Wembley weren't actually that bad. Yeah, and the final went to a replay, of course. I mean, there was a one-one yeah. at, at Wembley. John Hark scoring the goal. I remember that Rams, another American name from the from the nineties. And then Andy Linekin got the winner in the replay on, on an evening. I think it was the following Wednesday or Thursday. Um, great for Arsenal. I mean, they also won, as I said, the League Cup as well against Sheffield Wednesday. And Steve Morrow was injured in the post-match yeah. celebration, falling off Tony Adams' shoulders. Uh, Matthew, what, was that kind of where Arsenal were at, the, at that point? Do you think they were pretty much a cup team rather than you know the team that, we, that I talked about with Greg at the start of the decade that won the league? At that point, they were very much more in transition into a sort of a cup team that on their day could beat the best. Yeah, they were. And it's funny now hearing people crow about Arsenal, you know, or we're, they, it's a disgrace they're not fighting for the league and all that kind of thing, which is fair enough because they've obviously had... 12, 13 years of, 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 of doing that. But if you think back to this era, Arsenal weren't really the force that everyone thinks of them as now. And and you're right. Um, I think 91, 92, they'd finished fourth or fifth, I think. And then, so they weren't anywhere near the, the force that they would go on to become. So to reach two cup finals and win two cup finals, I think was probably a, a huge achievement. Uh, from a neutral's point of view, I, I remember thinking it wasn't great that both cup finals were forced out between... Uh, the same teams, but but for Arsenal, yeah, that's that's a fair point. I think they would they would take that, and obviously from that three or four years on, they would then progress to become this this side that were fighting for titles as we remember them. Yeah, Matt, do you remember these cup finals? And like you said, they won the League Cup as well, and Steve Morrow's injury. I mean, it's one of those oops moments walking around on Tony Adams' shoulders while Paul Merson is doing his kind of weird beer drinking pose as well it's kind of it summed up Arsenal that era didn't it it really did yeah I mean Adam's clumsy and Merson <laughs> on the booze too much what I tell you what I remember you'll you love this geek out actually actually um the league cup final I seem to remember was the first time that teams wore squad numbers and names on the back of I their shirt. I think shirts. it was good. Yeah, mm. nice one. Yeah, good fact. It was. All, they also did that in the FA Cup. I think mm. that year as well. I think they brought it in for both. So yeah, that, that would have been. Yeah, like like squad numbers. Yeah, I don't like really high squad numbers that you see now. That's one of my little pet hates as well. Modern oh, football no. pet hate. I, I like like I really hate low squad numbers. I'll give you the perfect example. This should be a booking at the start of every game for me. <laughs> Jordan Ayew, attacking midfielder yeah. slash striker number three for Swansea. Yeah, Schneidlin number two for Everton. That's the yellow card. <laughs> yeah, we've got one at QPR. Luke Freeman, midfielder, playmaker number two. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, that's yeah, but it didn't happen then. It was still kind of more one to eleven, wasn't it? But yeah, Arsenal winning both cups there as well. So yeah, that was good for them. First time I think it'd been done, and certainly it was the only time it happened in the nineties. It was a season for I wouldn't say, I like to say underdogs, but as we mentioned already, Norwich were pretty much in the title race. Blackburn as well with big spending. I have to shout out to QPR, who are top London club as well. Great season for them. Although I don't think we beat Forest that season. I, I, did, I think you're the one of the teams we you managed to avoid getting beat by, if, that, if I remember rightly. <laughs> well, that was lucky. Was yeah. that Les Ferdinand 
Was he? He was not the top scorer, but he was a, maybe the top English he, scorer yeah, he was in the, the top league. Teddy Sheringham was top scorer, and uh, yeah, Ferdinand was second. No, that was the season we'd beat. I'm thinking of another season actually, because I one of the first games I ever went to was a Forest game. It was over Easter weekend that year. Um, we won four two, and Ferdinand scored a hat trick. So mm-hmm. yeah, it was it wasn't that season I'm thinking of, and that was his back to back hat trick actually, because he scored a hat trick on Easter Monday against uh, Everton as well at Goodison Park. Um, looking at the awards as well, um, the PFA award didn't go to a main night player, went to Paul McGrath of Aston Villa. Uh, the young player went to Ryan Giggs though. The football writers went to Chris Waddle, and as I said, Teddy Sheringham was the top goal scorer. And the goal of the season, uh, it's kind of a, a sad one this because it was by Daley Naxon, a fantastic goal who sadly passed away mm-hmm. uh, a, a couple of months ago. Do you remember the goal, Matthew? A fantastic goal against Wimbledon, wasn't it? Brilliant goal, yeah. I was I was actually going to mention that, and I'm glad you reminded me of that because I, I had to write an obituary for uh, Daly when he died a few months ago, and, and that goal, uh, what a brilliant goal it was. I mean, it really was. I mean, he picked the ball up, middle of the park, beat three or four defenders, and then chipped it over Hans Seegers. And not only was it a fantastic goal, but it was one of my favourite ever goal celebrations as well. When he runs up to the uh, Villa away end, I think. Dean Saunders jumps on his back and then a man appears with an umbrella, <laughs> hands him an umbrella and they're all just sort of dancing around in the in the rain at, at a half-empty Selhurst Park. But no, brilliant, brilliant goal and a great player. I I thought he was, this was probably his, one of his best best eras in football was this this season and he did really well at Villa and uh, top player, top goal. Yeah, it was a top goal in the umbrella celebration. I think the guys, fans of the show, Art of Football, do a great t-shirt of that goal celebration for any Villa fans out there wearing that un- another great kit with the laces um, and yeah, then switching slightly to, to the Champions League because this was a, a season of change there as well because it was the first season that it became the Champions League rather than the European Cup and it's something that I remember I don't know if you remember this Matt Leeds Rangers the Battle of Britain does that spark some oh yes uh, that was really early in the competition yeah. as well wasn't it um, I remember having the shoot uh, issue for that week which was a special Battle of Britain issue uh, yeah yeah good It was that, and that was the year that Marseille Won it, was it? Won it, but not won it. Yeah, yeah, and then and then had it um, had it taken off. The... Yeah, no, I remember that um, that battle of Britain because it, it was so unusual at that point. I had, don't remember seeing the English and Scottish teams um, certainly for in that era play each other. And it was such an exciting time. Obviously, Rangers went over Leeds in the end. Leeds didn't quite fulfil their potential after winning the league the season before. But yeah, Marseille ended up winning the Champions League as well. Um, before we get on to a little new feature that I wanted to go, is there anything else you guys wanted to throw into the mix? Matthew, I'll come to you first uh, about 92-93. Obviously, we've gone through a lot there and we could probably talk all day a lot on, on each of those subjects. But anything else you wanted to throw into the mix? Uh, not not particularly off topic. No, I mean, what I would say is as much as Sky gets knocked and everyone sort of has a bit of a laugh about what they've done, you've got to take your hats off to the way when Sky took over the broadcasting duties in this season. They changed not just the live broadcast which obviously involved three four five hour build-ups but also the just the way that we were football was much more accessible you know you had things like um the footballers football show and hold the back page and the boot room and and programs like that and i think as much as you can knock it this era really did open up football to to the football fan which we'd never seen the likes of before i mean the season before that the season finished you know at leeds won the league and that was it you never saw any more about it whereas from the 92-93 season onwards, it just everything just just changed. And it, even if another broadcaster was to cover football now, even the likes of BT Sport, they've all been influenced by the way that 
that Sky did it that first season. I think you almost have to give Sky credit for that. Yeah. One of the things that Sky did, and people just completely overlook this as well, but it's just something we take for granted in modern day football, is the score. The score in the corner, corner yeah. yeah. I was like, going to mention that, yeah. That never happened before. <laughs> You had to wait kind of every 15 minutes or so, didn't you, where the score would come yeah. up on the, on the graphic, whether it be on ITV. I remember Italian 90 with the graphics that had the dots down the side and along the bottom. Yeah. You had to wait yeah. for that. And Sky, it was there. I mean, it looked, you look at it now, it looks terrible, the graphic, but it was such a little thing. Although on Such a, side, a small thing, yeah. It's on a side project. Why did BT Sport have it down the bottom? Really? I think they just wanted to be different. I, I think, to be honest, they just thought, well, we can't do it the same as Sky. We've got to try and do no, it doesn't work, especially when you're switching channels and it's across. Uh, Matt, anything else you wanted to mention from 1993? Um, just the fact that um, I alluded to earlier that Forrest could have signed Stan Collins yeah, at more the about end that, of that yeah. season. Um, they didn't because they opted, or Brian Clough opted, to sign Robert Rosario instead. <laughs> if you're a 90s football fan, you will be able to guess what happened next. That's one of my favourite stories I've ever heard on this podcast. Robert Rosario. <laughs> There's not many 90s names. He played for Nor- was that from Norwich or Coventry? Uh, I think he came to us from Coventry. He, was at, he had his success at Norwich, didn't yes. he? he? I think yeah. he got a goal of the season in either 1991 or 91-92 with like a, a volley from the yeah. halfway line. Something remember, ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Robert Rosario. Well, that leads on nicely, actually, to, to something I wanted to... I think I mentioned it earlier in the season. We haven't quite got round to it, but I've asked the guys to, to do it this week, and uh, we probably need a jingle at some point, but it's called Obscure Players of the 90s, and Robert Rosario is a perfect example of that, so I hope that wasn't the one you'd lined up, Matt. But let's go to, to Matthew first, then. Give us a name, and let's share some memories of an obscure 90s player from you. Um, I, when you mentioned this yesterday, I mean, there are lots that you could talk about. We've just mentioned um, Rosario there. I, I didn't actually think of him. But um, when you mentioned obscure 90s players, the name Hugo Porfirio ah. came into my head. Now, I don't know why, because I, I did have a, I've got a good mate who was a West Ham fan at the time. And I remember him absolutely raving about this guy when he signed. He said he's going to be the greatest player ever and he's, uh, he's going to set the world alight. And he, Portuguese uh, player and as far as I know he did absolutely nothing um, and like I say for, for some strange reason the name Hugo Porfirio always comes into my mind probably unfairly to him but I would have him down as my obscure player of the 90s what was 96, 97 something guess, like that yeah, I mean, I'm, not to, I'm going to claim that I'm not just knowing this off the top of my head as much as I, I love 90s football yeah 96, 97 went on loan to West Ham and had a club it had kind of years in Portugal mainly, a couple in Spain, um, as well as at Nottingham Forest, Matt, I didn't realise that he played for in 1999. Well, this is, this is really funny. I've, I've just laughed when um, Matthew said that because I've been writing an article for uh, Forest Magazine today and uh, about our relegation in 98-99, actually, and how Hugo Porfirio was one of the rare beams of light for us in that <laughs> season. We got him on loan in the January and he was... I mean, he was all tricks and flicks. He was not the sort of person you want to try and stop you getting relegated by any stretch of the imagination, but he was quite fun to watch. Yeah, and he went on. To, he did win three caps for Portugal, though. So, you know, he, he did win international honours and played for Benfica as well. So, yeah, good shout there. Um, Matt, who's your obscure player from the 90s? Right, I've gone for, this is very obscure, Robert Varshika. Oh, yeah, I remember the name, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he was one of only 13 foreign players to feature on the opening day of the inaugural Premier League season 92-93. He was a winger, Polish, who played for Everton. Um, He played for about three years in England. He then went on to make quite a good name for himself in MLS as a coach and a player. 
But until 2015, I couldn't believe this when I read it, but apparently it's true. Right up until Marcin Wasilewski scored for Leicester in 2015, Varsika was the only Polish player to have scored a Premier League goal. No way! Apparently so, yeah. And I sort of racked my brains for Polish players who played in the Premier League, and he tend to find goalies more than anybody else. So Raziak, yeah. who played for Tottenham, did he not score? Gregor's Raziak. He, I know he scored a lot for Derby in the Championship. Yeah, and oh, no, I just go. No, he didn't score in the league for Tottenham. Ah, oh, there you go. He played for Southampton. Were yeah, they were in the Championship at the time. Yeah, good. You've rolled out some great facts there. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Robert Varshiki. I think he was a winger, um, if I remember right. But I remember him in that that Everton kit, you know, with the sort of a little bit of blue trim on the shorts, but the big NEC and the yeah. white collar. Ah, oh, classic, classic half. Yeah, he must have played in the same team as Preki. Yes, was also, Preki was the other one I was thinking about. Yeah, another obscure player from the nineties. Great, two great shouts there, and with the added bonus for Robert Rosario as well. Brilliant. Right, <laughs> so it just leaves me to say thank you, guys. Uh, Matthew, where can we find you on the social network? Um, you can read some of my articles at matthewchris.co.uk or at matthewjchrist on Twitter. Brilliant. And Matt, and your, where we can hear your voice is Chelsea TV and TalkSport, but where can we find you on the social? Yeah, on Twitter, I am at MattDavisFC and Davis is D-A-V-I-E-S. So you do that on, on the group position. I always want to say, just like Barry, and, but no one would get that but me and you, but I'm going to say it now, just like Barry. Yeah, if only. He's my he's my commentary idol. So, you know, if I can get a gig on the jump in 50 years' time, I'll be happy. <laughs> that is the aim. Brilliant. Bloody love Barry Davis. Thank you very much, gents. Um, next time, of course, we'll be going our season to 93-94. More Man United, obviously. I'm, I'm, we're trying to do as little as possible, but they are did dominate the decade. Um, a little bit of Everton, I think, as well, we're going to have on the show. Guys from Football Pink, so look out for that. Um, until then, I am Ash Rose, and it remains for to say, keep it 90s.